1 Corinthians 8, 1 to 13. Now about food sacrifices to idols. We know that we all possess knowledge. Knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. The man who thinks he knows something does not yet know as he ought to know. But the man who loves God is known by God. So then about eating food sacrifices to idols. We know that an idol is nothing at all in the world and there is no God but one. For even if there are so-called gods, whether in earth or on earth, in heaven or in, on earth, as indeed there are many gods and many lords. Yet for us there is but one God, the Father from whom all things came and, from, and for whom we live. And there is but one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom all things came and through whom we live. But not everyone knows this. Some people are still so accustomed to idols that when they eat such food, they think of it as having been sacrificed to an idol, and since their conscience is weak, it is defiled. But food does not bring us near to God. We are no worse if we do not eat, and no better if we do. Be careful, however, that the exercise of your freedom does not become a stumbling block to the weak. For if anyone with a weak conscience sees you and have this knowledge, eating in an idol's temple... Won't he be emboldened to eat what he has, what has been sacrificed to idols? So this weak brother from whom Christ died is destroyed by your knowledge. When you sin against your brother in this way and wound their weak conscience, you sin against Christ. Therefore, if what I eat causes my brother to fall into sin, I will never eat meat again so that I will not cause him to fall. Is that the kind of person you are? Or should we ask your family members about you in that regard? Uh, I think that in our Australian culture, there is something uh, within us that uh, makes us people who tend to like to stand up for our rights and to make use of whatever freedoms that we have. Some of those freedoms and rights have been hard won and so it's no wonder we like to stand up for them. But is it always a good thing or is there a downside to standing up for your rights? Uh, can you think of situations whereby someone has stood up for what was rightfully theirs uh, but they've done so uh, to the genuine detriment of another person? Well, if you live in a family or a household like household I live in, you know that that happens from time to time, uh, and I'm sure that's the case uh, for many of you. Should we always make use of our rights? Uh, this is worth thinking about because it's not only something that uh, impacts us as Australians. Uh, we Aussies have certain rights. But as Christians, we have certain spiritual rights. There are certain rights which God gives us as Christians. What are those rights? And should we always exercise our rights? Uh, over the next three weeks, as we continue our series on 1 Corinthians, we're going to ask these kind of questions. 
Should we be using the spiritual rights that God gives us? Now, um, this was an issue uh, because uh, in 1 Corinthians chapter 8, which would be good to have open, it was triggered by a question which the, which the church had uh, raised with the Apostle Paul. Now, in this back end of uh, 1 Corinthians, Paul is addressing the issues that the Christians have raised with him. We know that because he often starts by saying, now about, and then he talks about a topic. And that's what he does in verse 1, doesn't he? He says, now about food offered to idols. That was a question. And the question was, do Christians have the spiritual right to eat food which somebody else has offered up at the altar of a pagan god? Now, unless I miss my guess, that's probably not the kind of issue that you face every day of the week, is it? Right? Uh, but, but may I say that it is an issue which uh, many Christians uh, do face, uh, especially if they come from other religious backgrounds. Um, for example, if they've become Christians out of Hinduism or Buddhism, and perhaps their families may still uh, worship uh, the gods of Hinduism or Buddhism, and it's an issue for them. More about that later. But what I want to suggest to you is that how Paul answers this question, the principles that he uses have direct relevance and application for every single one of us, for you and me, in terms of the way that we live our Christian lives, particularly in terms of how we treat other Christians. So that's the broader issue. Uh, what does the passage say? What was actually happening in Corinth? Um, by way of background, Corinth was a very pagan city. Um, you may know that Corinth was a bustling cosmopolitan seaport uh, in the Mediterranean. And uh, because of that, it was a hub of uh, activity. It was a place where many, many different kinds of people lived, people of different uh, national backgrounds, of different racial backgrounds, um, people who worshipped all sorts of different gods. Were, it was a melting pot uh, of uh, basically the Mediterranean area. And because of that, the Christians in Corinth found themselves living in a context whereby they were surrounded by the worship of pagan gods and those pagan gods had temples that were dedicated to them. So pagan temples were all over the place in Corinth. Now, this uh, caused problems for the Christians in three ways, which I want to speak about in today's passage. And the first way is this, that at the very heart of pagan um, <coughs> idol worship, was the question of eating food. People would go to the, to the temple, uh, they would offer up food sacrifices at the shrine or at the altar, but not all of the food would be uh, burnt. 
uh, a lot of the food would be apportioned for, uh, well, it would be burnt, but it wouldn't be burnt right up. A lot of the food would actually be apportioned for a temple feast, which would take place. And these temple feasts were a very important part of the, uh, the social life of people in the ancient world. It wasn't just their religious life, but the religious life and the social life intertwined. Now, many of the Christians from non-Christian backgrounds would have been brought up, would have been raised with their families by going to these temple feasts on a regular basis. That was where the community connected. And so, uh, as one commentator I read put it, that these pagan temples were like the social function centres or the restaurants of the ancient world. That was where you connected socially with people. So the question therefore arises for the Christians um, of whether or not Christians should attend these feasts, whether a Christian had the right to eat at a feast where the food had been offered up uh, to a pagan god. That was the first issue. Secondly, the uh, food which was offered to idols was often not consumed entirely at the temple and the food that was left over, the raw meat, uh, would often be sold to the butchers. And so a Christian going down to the marketplace to purchase meat may be confronted with the reality that the meat that they were about to buy for their groceries had been offered up as a sacrifice to a pagan god. And so the question is, uh, what should they do? Should they buy that meat? Again, that's not an issue that we would face normally, although if you go down to Coles, you'll find the halal food symbol on a lot of uh, products uh, that are available down there. Now, thirdly, what if a Christian was invited to dinner at the home of a non-Christian and they're about to tuck into a you know, roast lamb uh, and the host says to them, I just want you to know that the food that we're about to eat has been offered up to my God, you know, be it a Roman God or a Greek God or an Egyptian God at the temple. Does the Christian have the right to eat such food? Or would eating food that's been offered up to a pagan god be dishonouring to God? So that was the issue. And there was clearly a debate that was raging in the Corinthian church about this. Because it seems that some of the church members were saying, yes, it is quite okay to eat food that's been offered up to idols. Others were saying, no, don't touch it. Don't go anywhere near it. So the issue is, who was right? Well, let's look at what Paul says. Um, in verses 4 through to 6, we see that those who said, yes, it is okay, actually had knowledge which was true. Let me read verses 4 to 6. So then, about eating food sacrificed to idols... We know that an idol is nothing at all in the world and that there is no God but one. For even if there are so-called gods, whether in heaven or on earth, 
as indeed there are many gods and many lords, yet for us there is but one God, the Father, from whom all things came and for whom we live, and there is but one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom all things came and through whom we live. Now, notice there that Paul talks about many gods and many lords. Do you see that in verse 5? In Corinth, there are many so-called gods and so-called lords. Now, why would he differentiate the two? What's the difference between a god and a lord? Well, there isn't much difference really, but uh, I can tell you that the reason that he differentiates there is that in the ancient world, the traditional Greek and Roman gods, their deities were referred to as being gods, but there were some new religions that had, had, had emerged, what they called the mystery cults, and uh, their deities were referred to as being lords. So it's just a localised um, use of language that Paul is picking up on. And so the question is, are these so-called gods and so-called lords, are they real? Do they exist? And what's Paul's answer? Paul's answer is, no, they don't. An idol is just a block of wood or a block of stone. And the gods or the lords which the idol represents do not exist. Uh, they are ideas which have been invented by human beings. Now, many people, uh, even today, believe that the universe is controlled by many gods. Um, what do we call that kind of belief, the belief that there are many gods that control the world? Does anyone know? What's that called? Polytheism. That's right, poly meaning many, theism meaning God. Um, Hinduism would be an example of a religion that is polytheistic, that there is a whole you know, plethora of uh, gods that are real, that are in the world and that control the universe. But the great revelation of the Bible is not polytheism. The great revelation of the Bible is monotheism. Mono meaning one God. There is one God. The Bible is quite exclusive about that. That there is not only one God, there is only one God who is real. And who is he? Well, in verse 6, Paul, using their local language of gods and lords, uh, says that there is only one God and he is the Father um, from whom all things came and for whom we live. And there is only one Lord, Jesus, through whom we came and through whom we live. Uh, God, the one God, is the creator, uh, but he's also the recreator. He is the one who has given us life through Jesus. And you see, what he's saying is that an idol is nothing. 
uh, it represents a God which does not exist. And in saying that, he's affirming what some of the Christians in Corinth already know and are very, very solidly committed to. And these are the strong Christians. Uh, They say, who cares whether the food has been offered to an idol or not? The reality is that the idol is just a block of wood or stone. The God it represents does not exist. So who gives two hoots? It doesn't matter. Enjoy the food. Christians have the right to eat the food because food is just food. It's a gift from God. That's one position. But there were those who said that it was wrong to eat food offered to idols. They said that Christians did not have that right. Why? Well, take a look at verse 7. Um, Paul, saying that uh, the one group has this knowledge, says in verse 7, but not everyone knows this. Some people are still so accustomed to idols that when they eat such food, they think of it as having been sacrificed to an idol and since their conscience is weak, it is defiled. Now, what do we know about this group of Christians? Well, I suggest that it's not that these Christians still believed that the other gods actually existed. It's just that they are weaker Christians. They may actually be younger Christians. Put yourself in their shoes. Before they were Christians, the worship of pagan idols was very, very much a part of who they were as people. It was a huge part of their lives. Uh, It was part of their lives when they were living as people who did not know the true God, who did not know the way of salvation, who did not hope have any hope of eternal life. Now, at one level, they know in their heads that there is only one God. Of course they know that. But in their hearts, their former worship of false gods is still woven into their emotions and their feelings. Paul says that they are still so accustomed to idols. And so for these people, they simply cannot take a chunk of meat that's been offered up to an idol and put it in their mouths and just be completely neutral about it. They will associate it as being food which has been offered up to an idol. And that for them becomes problematic. And so in verses 8 to 9, Paul has a warning. Let's look at that warning. In verse 8, But food does not bring us near to God. We are no worse if we do not eat and no better if we do. Be careful, however, that the exercise of your freedom does not become a stumbling block to the weak. Now, this is obviously a warning to the strong Christians. Uh, They say that they have the freedom to eat food offered to idols And Paul says to them, well, 
you're right, but you're also wrong. Uh, you are right in principle. You are right that the false gods do not exist, that food is just food. Christians do have the right to eat food that's been offered to idols. Food, he says in chapter 10, verse 26, is a gift from God. You are right, but you are also wrong. And he gives two reasons. Well, there are two reasons why they are wrong. Firstly, why is it that these stronger Christians are actually eating this food? Um, is, the, is the issue that they're talking about food that they have purchased from the butcher's shop? No, it's not. Have a look at verse 10. In verse 10, what are the so-called stronger Christians doing? These stronger Christians, in verse 10, are eating in the idol's temple. Do you see that? That's what they're doing. Now, they would say, well, because the idol is nothing, uh, because the God doesn't exist, and because eating at the idol feast is a good social way of connecting, then why not? Well, there is a why not. And Paul actually gives the why not in chapter 10. Uh, some of you may not be here in two weeks' time when we look at chapter 10, so I'll actually give you a preview. The why not is this. It is true that all other gods are false. The only God who actually exists is the God who has been revealed to us in the pages of the Old and the New Testaments. All other gods are human inventions. They do not exist. But Satan and his demons do exist. And the pagan temple is the domain of demons, of Satan. Um, have a look at chapter 10. Go to chapter 10, verses 19 to 21. Verse 19. Do I mean then that a sacrifice offered to an idol is anything, or that an idol is anything? No. But the sacrifices of pagans are offered to demons, not to God. And I do not want you to be participants with demons. You cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons too. You cannot have a part in both the Lord's table and the table of demons. Are we trying to arouse the Lord's jealousy? Are we stronger than he? Friends, Satan uses false religion to achieve his purposes. He uses idols and religion, false religion, uh, to fill people's lives with a false spirituality. Uh, it's what we see in Romans chapter 1, where Paul says that though they knew God, they neither um, glorified him or gave thanks to him, but they exchanged the glory of the immortal God uh, for images, you know, made to look like animals and birds and reptiles. 
False religion and idolatry fills us with a false sense of spirituality. And therefore what it means is that they do not worship the true God. Uh, Satan uses false worship to take people away from worshipping the one and only God. Now, the false religions, of course, have names for their gods, whether they call him Buddha or someone else, Allah. And they are able to describe to you uh, his character or her character and uh, his or her power uh, in quite detailed fashion. But it's all nonsense because the God does not exist. It is a human invention, not revealed from the one and only God. But Satan will work through that false God to blind and to deceive people. And so therefore the Christians are not to participate at the idol feasts. Now, this, of course, is an issue for many Christians today, as I mentioned, whose families uh, worship false gods. Uh, it's certainly true in Cassie's family. Um, when we visit the family, as we'll be doing in a few weeks' time, uh, we must not go to the temple. Uh, we must not burn incense or offer food at the altar. Uh, we must not participate in eating the food which has been offered at the family ancestral shrine. Uh, we must not do that. Uh, for to do so is to eat at the table of demons, not at the table of the Lord. But there is a second reason why the so-called strong Christians are wrong. Uh, and it is this. They may be strong enough to eat at the idol's temple feast and not be tempted to actually worship the idol, worship the false god, and slip back into idolatry. But what about the weaker Christian? What if the weaker Christian sees the stronger Christian eating at the temple feast and decides to join in? What effect might that have on the weaker Christian? Verses 10 to 12. For if anyone with a weak conscience sees you who have this knowledge eating in an idol's temple, won't he be emboldened to eat what has been sacrificed to idols? So this weak brother for whom Christ died is destroyed by your knowledge. When you sin against your brother in this way and wound their weak conscience, you sin against Christ. By eating in the idol temple, what the stronger Christian has done is he has created a stumbling block for the weaker Christian. He's put something in the, in the, in the path of the weaker Christian that the weaker Christian can trip over and fall spiritually and it happens in two ways. Firstly, imagine uh, that the weaker Christian is someone who 
genuinely believes in principle that it is always wrong to eat food that has been offered up to an idol. And they see their other Christian brother doing exactly that publicly. And they think, well, why not? And they go and join in. They go and do something which they, in their hearts, although they're wrong, they believe that it's sinful, but they go and do it. Now, in that sense, what they have done is they have rebelled against God. They have done what they thought that God does not want them to do, even though God might be quite okay about it. And so they've sinned against their conscience. Paul in Romans chapter 14 uh, talks more about this, uh, not so much in, t- in the context of food offered to idols, but different thoughts that people might have about certain foods or whether or not Christians can drink wine. So you might uh, rightly believe that Christians can drink wine, but if there's a Christian who believes that it's sinful to drink wine and you go and tempt them to drink wine and they do so, then you've caused that person to sin against their conscience. You might want to uh, explain to them why it's okay to, to drink wine, but you must never use that knowledge to cause them to fall. That's the first... Um, the first way that it might affect the weaker Christian. But secondly, for some, idol worship, as I said, has been woven into their lives. And so if they're tempted to go back to the temple and participate in this idol feast, then it may stir up the old feelings in their heart and tempt them back to the worship of idols particularly if they're a fresh Christian, a new Christian. Now, how does this all help and challenge you and me? Well, I want to uh, just ask this question, and the question is, what was the basic problem of the so-called stronger Christians? And I take it that their basic problem was that they were people who loved to stand on their rights and they thought they knew what their rights were. But there's an old saying, um, you've probably heard it, it goes that a little bit of knowledge can be very, what does it say? Very dangerous. A little bit of knowledge can be very dangerous. And it seems that these so-called strong Christians had a little bit of knowledge. Uh, They knew that the false gods don't exist But what they hadn't figured out was that the false gods, that Satan actually works through the false gods to deceive people. And I think that's what Paul is referring to or alluding to in uh, in verse 2, where he says, The man who thinks he knows something does not know as he ought to know. They think they know, but they're not as smart as they think they are. A little bit of knowledge, very dangerous. But more than that, they did not understand the purpose of Christian knowledge. Uh, What does Paul say in verse 1 about knowledge and love? Have a look at verse verse 1. What does knowledge do? Knowledge puffs up, 
Whereas love builds up. Knowledge puffs up. Love builds up. Now, friends, uh, it is vitally important that you and I should have knowledge of God and his will. Uh, we should work to have a, uh, a strong, deep and thorough knowledge uh, of God and his will as revealed to us in the scriptures. And so that means that we need to be people who are very, very studious of the scriptures. I want to encourage you to be people who read the Bible every day of the week, systematically. Get to know God through studying his word individually. We get to know God's word in groups. I want to encourage every one of us to join a Bible study group where we can come together and actually interact around God's word and really learn and grow. And of course, by doing exactly what we're doing now, we've come together to hear God's word explained. It is vitally important that we have a knowledge of God through his word, because if we don't, then we'll be ignorant of God and we'll be ignorant of what pleases him. But the purpose of Christian knowledge is not merely intellectual satisfaction. Um, to stuff our brains so that we can be the correct Christians and we can stand on our biblical rights. That is to be puffed up. But the purpose of Christian knowledge is to build up. And that is done because the purpose of Christian knowledge is to love God and to love our neighbour. Who is our neighbour, by the way? Well, at the very least, it's your fellow brother or sister in Christ. And they may be someone who is a younger brother or a weaker brother or sister. And we are to use our knowledge for their benefit, for the spiritual good of others. Now, the freedom uh, to eat food that's been offered up to an idol um, is obviously, as I said, not something which you and I face on a regular basis. But there will be times when it is best for you and I uh, to not exercise our rights as Christians. Paul has much to say about that next week when we look at uh, chapter 9. Um, particularly in terms of his right to be uh, taken care of in a material sense as an apostle. Um, one of the rights that we have is the right to speak the truth, um, uh, to uh, teach each other uh, about God and sometimes to correct one another. In fact, it's a responsibility that we have. But is it always best for us to exercise that right? Um, think, for example, of this situation. Imagine, uh, and you might have been in this, have you ever been in the situation whereby you've been speaking to a Christian brother or sister who's perhaps been a Christian longer than yourself, and you say something which turns out to be not 100% theologically correct, and uh, your dear dear brother or sister who knows, who has greater knowledge than you, 
considers it incumbent upon them to correct you um, bluntly, uh, right there and then, uh, in such a way that uh, they make you feel stupid? Have you ever had that happen to you? Ever done that to anyone else? I've seen it happening. And I know of Christians for whom that's happened who have been so torn down by the experience that they've wanted to keep their mouths shut in future. Uh, in fact, uh, I've known people who have uh, just decided to stop going to Bible study group and it's taken years for them to be lured back. And so the exercise of the, the knowledge has not been used to build up the person but has had a negative effect on their Christian life. Now, there'll be a multitude of other examples that you might be able to think about. But Paul's principle is that the truly strong Christian will be the person who uses their knowledge of God in a humble way so as to help and to build up the weaker Christian, not to tear him or her down and certainly not to cause the person to be tempted to sin even if that's sinning against their own conscience. Have a look at how Paul summarises his own view in verse 13. He says, Therefore, if what I eat causes my brother to fall into sin, then guess what? I will never eat meat again. It's that important, so that I will not cause him to fall. Now, uh, we Aussies, we uh, love standing on our rights, and I guess you could say that uh, to deliberately decide to forfeit your rights, well, what would we call that? Un-Australian, perhaps? Well, that's exactly what Jesus did for us. When he gave up his heavenly home, when he became a man, when he hung on a cross for you and me. Now, if Jesus has forfeited his rights for us in that way, then surely we can do so for the sake of others. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that uh, you have revealed yourself to us uh, through the scriptures as being the one and only God. Father, we thank you that we can know you. And Father, we do pray that we would be people who use that knowledge for the good of others, to build others up in their knowledge of and their love for you and certainly not to tear people down. Help us to be sensitive to that, Father. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.